Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey friends, my name is Andre and this is a Tennis and Bagels podcast, a podcast about everything tennis from recreational to pro and I am actually quite happy that um, I've been saying this and me and Vansh have been discussing about the recreational part and I sort of convinced him that uh, recreational is still fun uh, and I, it's some, something I would still like to talk about in the podcast and today is going to be no exception. Um, Vansh is not necessarily a recreational super amateur player he has a bunch of trophies um i can see him in the video right now um something like 15 or 20 trophies on his shelves and so he's a pretty good tennis player didn't make it into pro uh but today we're going to be talking a little bit about his um his love for tennis essentially like his uh his um path of life that led him to be um, tennis nerd and a uh, person who loves statistics so much. And how are you, go- how are you doing today, Vansh? <laughs> Andre, that was a great intro. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, I'm really happy to talk about the recreational side of the game and especially how, how I kind of got into it and uh, kind of go from there. Yeah, super excited. Nice. So um, I hope this is going to be relatable. A lot of us, especially on tennis Twitter, um we're not professional tennis players. We just kind of like to watch it, um, have day jobs or study university in completely unrelated fields to uh, to tennis or journalism, things like that. Um, but yeah, like let's let's get into it. Um, and I guess that the first thing that it's interesting to talk about is like really just how did you start with tennis? Like what brought you into it? Like did you watch a match? And did somebody put a record on your hand and brought you to, to the nearest <laughs> club? What happened? Yeah, it's actually a it's a funny story because actually um, you know, until I was 6 or 7, I didn't really play a whole lot of sports. I started out playing little league baseball actually. And I played some soccer, I played some some team sports. Occasionally I'd go and shoot hoops uh in a neighborhood park uh nearby, but I hadn't really known what tennis was. Until one day, me and my, one summer when I was seven, me and my brother were bored, and we were just taking a walk around the neighborhood, and we were walking, and there was these this area where there was this green dumpster and a recycling bin and kind of the dead end of the street, and lying next to the dumpster there were these two rackets. One was a Prince racket, Prince tennis racket, and one uh, and actually the other one was also a Prince. Uh, one was blue, the other was black. And I remember me and my brother just picked one up and we were like, oh, finders keepers, we win. <laughs> and so we just picked it up and we just ran uh, back to the garage. And I remember we had a few tennis balls because at this time my dad was pretty active in, in playing tennis. He just did it like for recreational fun exercise. He loved playing doubles with his friends. And so I remember around this time I was just, I just picked up the tennis ball and I just started hitting against the cabinet like off the garage door. And, you know, Mm -hmm. I mean, I didn't have any kind of knowledge of what tennis actually was. I didn't even know there was a net and there was, you know, a proper tennis court that you had to go to. I just kind of picked up and started hitting and I just found it to be really kind of rhythmic and, uh, you know, metronomic in a way that you could keep repetitively hitting against a kind of, uh, against a surface and it would essentially just come back to me where I wanted it to. So I thought that was really unique and cool about this, uh, this the sport and so i started to really fall in love with just hitting purely just even just taking the racket and ball and just bouncing it up and trying to see mm-hmm. how many times i can balance just kind of working on those hand-eye coordination without even really knowing what tennis was it was amazing yeah so it's it's interesting that you said like you started hitting the ball against the, the wall and i'm not sure um of your experience how many uh how many of your friends don't play tennis and um 
they come up to you and be like, hey, do you want to play tennis? And they have like absolutely zero clue what they're doing. And you end up finding yourself like coaching them sort of thing. Because that happens to me all the time. And most of the time they they have so such little clue of what a, like how to hit a ball that I toss the ball with my hands towards them. And they manage to miss that terribly like it doesn't yeah. it doesn't maybe sometimes they don't even hit the ball and like i find it impressive like maybe because you're a kid kids have like a little bit more ease in hitting but were you hitting good balls no. towards the no. ball okay i wasn't i wasn't yeah. hitting it uh, i wasn't hitting it very well but it, i think it just I, I think i just had the patience at the time that you know it was summer there wasn't really anything else to do you know you're seven years old there's uh you know your parents are home are are not at home they're gone at work and you know at that time my grandparents were there and so we were just we were just bored and so i just started kind of just playing around experimenting i wasn't hitting the ball well at all i was hitting like the the floor a lot of the times when i was or i was missing the wall and i, I just wasn't able to to get a good rhythm going but i just kept on trying yeah. and trying and then actually one day uh what happened is my dad said do you want to come with me to the tennis courts and so i'd actually observe my dad play tennis and he didn't have any kind of spectacular technique or anything i mean his forehand and his backhand and serve the fundamentals he would just kind of keep the rally going but they weren't exactly textbook <laughs> fundamentals because he yeah. also just learned by just watching and learning from his friends um and playing and so that drew me to the game too that i could have this kind of bond with my dad that nice. i could learn i could kind of learn from him essentially uh you know the basics of tennis how does the scoring system work why does it go to 15 instead of 1 like yeah. why is it 15 30 and 40 so i started asking him all these questions and then one day came around where he started where he was watching a match on a sunday morning and you would not believe my luck because it turned out to be the 2008 wimbledon final no way. which is now touted <laughs> as like possibly the greatest match of all time and at this time, I remember I was still in the garage board and I was just hitting against the wall. And my dad just calls me and he says, he says, son, you have to see this. You have to see this match. This is, this is an all-time, this is an all-time great match. Uh, you know, come and watch. And I, I don't even remember what the score was or what was going on, but I do remember it was late in the match. And I remember just seeing, you know, two titans of the game, um, you know, battling it out on a grass court. And I just started asking my dad all these questions and he was getting a little bit, you know, he... He was really into the match. Um, I think he he didn't really have a player that he was supporting, but he was just he was just so engrossed in the out in 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 the moment really of the and the and the occasion and what was at stake for both the players. And I remember I was just like so impressed by both of them. I was so impressed, particularly by Federer. I was impressed by his balletic, graceful movement on the court. I was like, wow, he looks so smooth and so you know tightened and so you know beautiful to to just watch it was it was it was this like artistic uh yeah. you know clash between two opposites and then i was also impressed with the fight and the you know the bull like nature of nadal and i just i didn't even know his name at that time i was like why is he wearing a sleeveless shirt you know <laughs> and what are these cocky <laughs> pants this is it's a cool outfit and i remember after that i started wearing sleeveless i started uh you know getting wilson rackets i got so into uh into you know, the top players. I wasn't following tennis, like, regularly, but I mm. was super into... I just knew two players at that time, Roger Federer and Rafael Nadal. And Rafael Nadal. Just, <laughs> just, it just... What, what, I look at it now, 12 years later, like, what luck, you know? That, that was the first sure. match I'd, I ever watched on TV. Yeah. I, I remember when, at the time, like, where you are saying 2008, you were seven still at, in 2008? You were eight years old. At some, yeah, sort of. I turned uh, eight in that September. So okay, yeah. At that time, I was already playing tennis um, in a club and whatever. And mm -hmm. the next day, we we had some classes, and everybody was talking about the match. And like, I remember very clearly that uh, the shot that everybody was talking. Um, of course, Nadal won. He just like really just pushed Federer. Like how right. Federer fought, like for like he essentially just stole those two sets, like three and four. Yeah. Um and. The shot that always came to mind was like the backhand pass down uh, the line yeah. on match point, and to this day it, it still <laughs> gives me the goosebumps because it's it's it, it's such a ridiculous shot, like honestly right. to pull. Yeah, yeah, yeah I mean, play, yeah. Yeah. I remember that point really clearly. It was at uh, eight seven in the fourth set tiebreak, and it was championship point. And I remember, you know, I just remember the scenes of like also the player boxes because the player boxes back in those days used to sit uh, next to each other almost. 
Yeah. And I remember that, like how awkward that must have been. Two of your, <laughs> two rivals, you know, fighting for the same prizes, and they're, you know, essentially Federer's coach and and Uncle Tony are sitting right next to each other, and there's so much, so much tension, yet so much mutual respect between both of them that even yeah. when Federer came up with that brilliant pass, I mean, Uncle Tony was the first one on his feet. It was amazing. I just couldn't believe, you know, just what a win that match was for tennis. And looking back on it, and yeah, I mean, I'll. I'll never forget a lot of those points and many people were talking about it like days after i remember yeah um you know my father was having conversations with his friends and you know i mean that's that's how i got into the game it's it's amazing to look back now yeah that's cool yeah really cool it, it's it's actually so cool actually that that was your first match like a like yeah. an epic for the ages yeah. <laughs> so and how did exactly sort of because as i mentioned you have a, a ton of trophies back right behind you and How did you start getting to play tennis? Like, as in, sure. you got interested in like playing, and you got into juniors. What level did you get at? Like, as in, essentially. Yeah. So I mean, after two thousand eight, I really, you know, was just starting to take lessons at that point. So for a couple of years, I just took lessons, maybe once a week. Maybe I was in a, I was in a couple of group lessons. I would hit with my dad, and just, just be like a sponge and just kind of absorb. Uh, all the information that my coaches were giving at me, I try and, uh, you know, practice a little bit on my own and, you know, juggle school and, uh, and the other sports I was into like basketball and stuff. And so at that point, um, it wasn't until about 11 or 12, actually 12 years old that I really started getting serious. Like I want to do tennis now. So I left basketball mm. because that was my other main sport at that time. And I said, okay, I'm, I want told my parents, I really want to go all in on tennis And at, and at that point, it seemed, looking back, it seemed kind of late to go all in on tennis right at age 12 because I, look at, I looked at my peers at that time who were getting into playing junior tournaments and they'd already, you know, been training at academies and things. I grew up in a very professional, I grew up in a very kind of competitive state in Southern, I live in California, San Diego area. So Southern California is one of the most competitive regions in junior tennis where we have You know, most of the national tournaments are held here. We have the strongest division of any um, area or region in the United States for junior talent, really. So I was up against it uh, in those mm -hmm. junior tournaments in terms of, uh, you know, competition. Some of them have even gone on and got scholarships and played D1 and played um, even turn pro and have a ranking right now, some of my peers. So from that standpoint, I was really up against it at age 12. But nonetheless, I went to, an, um, I went to a local academy. It was called Shira Tennis Academy. And I started, uh, you know, taking it more seriously. I was doing more fitness work, more drills, and really getting myself ready to compete in these tournaments. These trophies that you see behind, um, this was usually satellite tournaments that I played between the ages of 12 to 14 to kind of get my mm. ranking up so I could compete in ultimately juniors. That's what it was really all about. There were these levels that you kind of had to go through. There was like, uh, you know, satellite, which was like a level six, And then it went to like level five, four, threes, twos, and ultimately level one was the hardest, which was like the sectionals and regionals and then ultimately the nationals. But from ages 12 to 14, I really just tried to play as many tournament, uh, as many, uh, I guess, play against a lot of good players. But I really started playing tournaments seriously at age 13. Mm -hmm. And that's where I collected a lot of these trophies were uh, mostly finalist trophies, unfortunately. <laughs> Runner-ups, second place, if you like. And so, and eventually, I will not forget, my favorite tennis memory was in July of 2013, where um, I had been playing that all that summer, and I had built up a lot of confidence, um, played a lot of matches. I'd played about four matches, and then I'd get to the finals and just lose to a better opponent. Hmm. And But I'd learned from um, those two losses, and I came into the the next tournament with no expectation really for myself to win the tournament. Um, even though I was the number one seed, believe it or not, I just huh. felt like, you know, I've lost two finals already, you know, the final is still far away. Let me just take it match at a match at a time. And I blitzed through the draw. I didn't drop a set. I got to the finals and I was so nervous. I was breaking down. I was, huh. I was in tears before the match You know, quite literally before the match, an hour before the match, I was in tears. I was, uh, I hadn't eaten anything all day because of the way the tournament schedule worked. You played multiple matches on the same day. And I remember telling my parents, like, I don't think I can do this. I don't think I can play. 
I can keep playing and put myself through these moments. And they were shocked. They were looking at me like, you're winning. You're having a lot of fun. You're competing well. Uh, you know, have a positive attitude. And they were trying to pep me up. But then I just kind of went on the court. And I had that mindset of just kind of F it. You know, whatever happens, <laughs> whatever happens, happens. You know, let's not make this... Because every single match at that stage in your career feels like a Wimbledon final to me. Felt yeah. like, it like a Wimbledon final. I kid you not. And I sometimes look back and I think, you know, how, what was I thinking? To treat every single match with such importance and significance when really it was just another tennis match. Just another... Just another you know, thing I was doing on the side, you know, but hmm. at that moment I had the dream and ambition of, you know, watching my heroes play and wanting to be like them. You know, I wanted to be like Roger Federer. I wanted to copy everything that he did. He was my kind of favorite player because of the Federer Nadal match that I watched that had such a big impact on me that he was the first really big tennis player that I, I said, no matter what match he's playing, I will always watch. I will always support him just because I just loved his, the grace that he had on the court and the dignity which with he carried himself on and off the court. And at that time, he was still like the greatest. You know, he was still seen as like the example for like junior tennis players. Like, you want to see mm. how to hit a good forehand, a good serve. You know, copy. You know, look at Roger Federer. Look at his slow motion videos and try and emulate, try and emulate him. So all the junior players that I knew, you know, would try and would try and copy him. And so that was really the first player that I. That kind of inspired me to play the game and uh, and and see the game. So I go to that tournament and in the finals I, I end up winning it, one and one in the finals. Oh wow! That was the ultimate. That was the peak of my career. That was the only title I ever won. Apart <laughs> from that, every single other trophy that you see here is all finalist trophies. But from uh -huh. this was a twelve and under tournament, and I was just about to turn thirteen when I won this tournament. So for me, this was like the last chance I would have probably ever had to win in the 12s age group. And so from that standpoint, I just kept chasing the dream, kept chasing tournaments and rankings until I just realized it was too much suddenly. You know, I was going to start high school. I wanted to, I was a good student in school as well. So I wanted to go to college. I wanted to pursue that, that dream. And uh, it, it eventually hit me that, you know, it's the way the competition is right now and the depth of competition, the way, uh, the way, the amount of sacrifices you have to make in Southern California to become pro, the money that it costs. These tournaments were not cheap. You know, my parents were having to spend their whole weekends and whole, um, pretty much, yeah, Saturday, Sunday, and take uh, come early from work, take me to all, take me and my brother, who's four years younger than me, to all these tournaments, and really just sacrifice their social life, their time, and you know, if the results weren't happening, you know. At, at the level that you wanted it to, you know, was it really worth pursuing this all the way and putting your eggs in one basket in such a competitive region? So that was kind of the process of my parents thinking. And they kind of had to persuade me that, you know, look, I mean, you can go to college, you can play tennis and tennis will always be with you. Tennis is a country club sport. You can play it at essentially any level. You know, you yeah. can play it when you're older and you have a job and you have financial income that will allow you to and it took me years and years and years to process what they were saying. I thought they were crazy. I mean, we had many fights all the time about this. Like, you know, no, I want, I want to play this tournament. I want to do this. I want it, I want it now. Now I didn't understand the bigger picture. Because at 12 mm. or 13 and 14, you want everything now. You don't quite. And, you know, it's an awkward time in your life when you're getting into high school and, you know, your academics and you're trying to fit in. And you see all these players that are just as good as you. And now they're having better results than you. You know, they're they're winning more tournaments than you. They're beating players that you, you know, lo lose to, like two and two. And so you're thinking, and so there was this cycle of me constantly comparing myself to other kids. And it, it just eventually it got too much to the point where I had to realize that, look, you know, my priority is school. And tennis, unfortunately, comes second. I can always watch. I can always play. I can always play recreationally. I can still play. I still played for my high school team for four years, you know. So eventually, I, I eventually I'd say at about 15, 16, 17, I found a good balance to be where mm -hmm. I am now, and I started getting more into watching the game and covering for it, and you know I started taking that other side of it, which is analyzing the game, writing articles, uh, you know, going on, and getting a lot of different perspectives, going joining tennis Twitter, which I did two years ago. <laughs> so 
for me, it was really a gradual pro- progression from understanding that of, the, of being a, a leisure player to understanding, uh, you know, kind of where my niche in the sport belongs. And I'm still discovering that I, I learn so much every single day. And that's the that's the beauty of this game. <laughs> yeah, I think it's it's crazy that you, you mentioned that um, you had to make a choice at some point. And it's not like um, it. looking back, we probably see that, well, it was 100% the better choice probably to not pursue a tennis career, a tennis pro career. Yeah. Because, yes, like those players that um, we, we give a lot of crap, for example, to like top 100 players for like being being trashed against like top 10 and top 15. Yeah. But man, those guys are the top 100 players in the world like it's not anybody that makes it so it's like that level alone is incredibly high to reach and i mean it, it takes like a as you said like i think you put it perfectly like oh uh, and you, i think it's interesting that you put the other side of it too because like when you when you see the players um who are professionals they're like oh yeah i'm so grateful for my mom and dad and uh who sacrifice so much for mm-hmm. me and i myself had to sacrifice so much as well for the game but they're there they made it so like you're one of the thousands millions of children like who ended up having to sacrifice a lot and just be like you know listen it's it's probably not worth it at this point like the costs are too high or things like that and right i mean it's 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 just life i find like it's there's no there's no no shame in it there's no problem at all like it and seriously like if you didn't have tennis analysts and things like that it would be super boring because talks would not go anywhere near it's so engaging like to go on tennis twitter and or any anywhere like uh, i i didn't even start on twitter actually i just i just started on the ch- on the on the comment section on the atp tour website right. yeah i'd read um articles and just kind of like list not not listen but like read people's comments and things like that and it was it was really interesting to just like be there and do that and it's it's you're right it's like a totally different side of it and, and it's just equally fun i guess and right. um and you can still play like uh in recreational tennis like uh, you can play other tournaments that you can maybe you can maybe you're gonna win more tournaments in your life uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, as life goes but, on <laughs> i mean i mean it's yeah it's great that you bring that up about the top 100 players because actually my parents used to use that as an example they used to say you know looking back i think i really have to credit my parents because the parents uh you know sometimes parents they they may come across as you know, at, at 12 or 13 years old, you may feel like, you know, they're crushing my dreams. They're supposed to be supporting me. But at the same yeah. time, they have this big picture that you don't have. And they have this wiseness and they they know exactly, you know, the they can see the dangers right in front of you. And they were, I'm really grateful to them that they were honest and upfront with me, you know, and they didn't just keep on, keep on. I didn't just keep on, keep on playing late, late, late into my, uh, into when I was 15, 16 or 17, because, I used to always give them examples like, look at these players. They're so good now. They're, you know, they're, their UTR has gone through the roof. Their rankings are, are so good. And they told me very honestly, those players will never make it anywhere. Because mm. to even be top 100 is, you know, it takes so much sacrifice, so much hard work, so much money. You need federations to support you. You need the right resources. You need the right uh, you know the the mindset that you know you're pretty much tennis is your only life. You know you're you're yeah. gonna have to drop school. You're gonna have to you're gonna have to get into a world where you're not even gonna break even. You look at top hundred players right now, uh, and you look at the pandemic that occurred. I mean, most of them are struggling to make ends meet and make break even and pay their coaches' salary and you know uh, and they're they're losing so much money by not playing competitions and not getting their ranking ranking up you know and so i think uh, it was very wise of them to see the bigger picture and they were they were ultimately right the players that were ahead of me that you know that had beaten but now were you know 11 or 12 utr and they may go and play d3 and d2 college division tennis but what are they going to do after their life you know what are they going to do in school you know what will they become 15 20 10 15 years from now will they have a successful earning job will they be able to provide for their families because if you give up so much ultimately to play tennis, you know, ultimately the best you can do if you don't make it to play pro is coach tennis, which I mean, financially, yeah. it's a tough life. And it, they may not. And if you don't have a degree from a good institute and you don't have good experiences professionally um, and you don't have the right resources to make it, you know, I mean, that's due to 
going in going all in on tennis. So you have to be really, really confident when you make a decision to go all in and play pro. And, you know, I was nowhere near the level where I could do it physically, mentally, and emotionally at that stage. So I think it's it was a harsh reality for me to learn. But looking back, a very good experience. And I learned so much from playing junior tournaments, putting learned so much yeah. how to deal with adversity and pressure. And that's something yeah. that only an individual sport like tennis can teach you. Um, rather yeah. than you know a team sport where at least you have your teammates to fall back on at least you have that security that you know you will be you will be okay so yeah in tennis it's yeah. all on you yeah it's 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 tough like i think when you when when you're talking about the um um the final that you that you won one and one and you're saying like oh yeah i don't know if i can do this um oh. There were two two instances of a professional tennis that came to my mind. Where one is the U.S. Open final this year, mm -hmm. they they were just cracking down, and the other one was um, tennis podcast interview with uh, Yannick Noah when okay. he was like, he he was saying like how oh in the first round of Wimbledon or something like this he was like I can't I don't think I can do this he was talking to Arthur Ashe like I I don't think I can do this right I mean... he was like breaking and I was like man it's like it, it's it's tough like I mean. And you're not even going to like a big state state uh, stadium or anything. It's just it's like a regular tournament. It's yeah, a regular. It's tournament definitely like with, a big emotional toll. Right. I mean, a regular tournament with no people watching, really no stakes, no prize money, hardly any points. Yet you still feel the pressure. You're playing a local league match in a local club, with you know, I can't even imagine what players go through when they're playing, you know, a U.S. Open final or a Wimbledon first round match when. You know, the pressure of your, your nation is on you, the pressure of your sponsors, the pressure of your agents, the pressure of your coach who sacrificed everything to be there, your parents, you, you know, yourself, the hours and hours. You hope that it something clicks early in the match and you can get you know, your adrenaline going. I mean, I just can't even I just can't even imagine the the amount of the amount of mental strain it takes on you and toll it takes on you to keep on playing especially when something means so much to you like tennis for me meant you know meant so much to me because i felt like i had put all my mental physical and emotional energy to get myself in those positions all those weekends and mm -hmm. then falling up short was such a you know it became such a such an obstacle for me to overcome because i've you know like if you that failure that that doubt that you that creeps into your mind or that fear of failure to overcome that is like a mount is a huge mountain to climb you know because right even before you walk on the court you feel you start to feel all the doubt and your head telling you you can't do it and you know you telling yourself you kind of have to fake it until you make it kind of that philosophy of like of like blocking everything out of you and just focusing on one point at a time i think a lot of people don't take that um very seriously in the pro game or they take that with a you know, with a bit of a, a a question mark, like, you know, it's such a boring answer. Like I just focus point by point, set by set to be where I am. But the great players, that's what they do. They're able to compartmentalize. They're yeah. able to focus on only the next serve, only the next shot, only the next, uh, the next ritual that they have to do, like Nadal, for example, you know? And so it yeah. really, really brings, it really gives you kind of this clarity and this, this vision of like how difficult it really is to make it in tennis. And I think without this experience, without, you know, having such well-supported, being so well-supported by my parents and who still, you know, who still support me and I still play tennis to this day. I mean, I still play league matches. I still play in a local league. I still play with friends. So looking back, I'm I'm pretty happy, you know, even though I only have yeah. one title. <laughs> I only won one title in my junior career. I look back like I'm I'm proud of my journey. I'm proud to be where I am right now. I can accept yeah. it now. Yeah, it's it's great. Like you, at least you won something. I only got second places ever in my entire life. Yeah, right now I have <laughs> so, trophies yeah. at FAA. Hey, <laughs> I have more. Exactly. Felix. I was actually I was actually thinking about that. I was like, yeah, it's kind of like an interesting segue to like one of a few of my next. Because seriously, uh, when you talk about your stuff and like remembering myself, like playing pretty much any match, like even if it's like just like the neighborhood match with like the sixty year old. Uh, man that puts every single ball back is kind of still feel if you if you're some sort of like related like mm -hmm. some sort of it's some somewhat real um not related like uh what's what's the word for it like uh 
gosh. You feel um, like you, you you feel like you can relate to. Yeah, you feel you, you feel like you can relate to like pros in in a sense, and like you can even like um, understand better like just the magnitude of what they're doing. You can sympathize yeah. with them, you know, the struggles that they're yeah. doing too. And yeah, I mean that's the great thing about tennis is that you know at at, at any level yeah. you can sympathize with yeah with anyone, and it's yeah. it's it's crazy too. Like a we can understand like you're talking about like just oh just that one one match one ti- one title and whatever how can you, they do like in a big stadium and to look at players like Djokovic and Nadal and Federer who have like a uh, 20 20 50 67 majors yeah no 57 yeah. majors in between them it's exactly. just ridiculous and then they go back to a player that you just mentioned um, Felix Ogialiasim who's struggling to win his first title yeah, <laughs> after six and uh, it, it yeah. can it can work either way right I mean you can lose a lot of finals you can get to that first title and it can just be everything you ever had and you might never win again you know that's the other thing yeah. is the uncertainty you just don't know you know you win your first yeah. title you think that's a stepping stone to winning many 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 more like I had thought at 13 but then reality yeah. kind of hits in and you you realize that you need to lower your expectations like a lot, you know. <sighs> I think I think it's 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 that hype that comes with winning the first one, right? That you see a lot of players, you know, even you can relate to it even now in the WTA and ATP. You can you can even see the see how how much it's like a monkey off your back. Yes, it's a monkey off your back that you won your first one, but now everyone knows you. The target is on your back now. Yeah. Now anything you do, every single move you make, everyone will will watch. You know, everyone will will have an opinion on you. You'll be written about much more. You'll be recognized on the streets more, and you'll be expected you, by yourself and your peers and everyone in the everyone your competitors to make that next step. And if you don't, it'll be seen as a disappointment. Versus six months ago, it would have been it would have been a victory. So that's how quickly yeah. things can change in tennis. Just like that's true. Not just not just to mention even in a single match, but throughout the course of five months. I mean, so much can change, and that's what you learn when you go through these turn when you go through these weeks of playing yourself. Uh, that you then look back on it and you're like, yeah, I mean, it was all it was all worth it to experience in the end. Hmm. So now, if you if you want to turn because. Uh, turning back into the the professional realities sure. of the game now that we're getting into it um, yeah. for the second part of this episode really um, so we have a, a couple topics that are interesting like uh, I feel like if you want to talk a little bit more about like for example the Felix Ojaliasim issue which is mm. um, yeah. having lost six finals to none um, at the first maybe two three finals it was it was uh, it was good results yeah now now it's now it's bad results to be losing. Yeah, it's yeah. a it's a it's yeah it's an interesting situation to look at because here you have a twenty year old who is in who has reached six finals. So firstly, that's a tremendous accomplishment. That's something that you know, I mean, no other twenty year old has even made of you know has made in you know six finals so far. So he's the first of that of that age group, and he was achieving youngest ever records. He's been touted ever since he was fourteen. He's basically been a prodigy, right? And there was all yeah. this hype even before he won his first ATP match that he was going to be this next superstar. And, you know, he's put himself in good positions to... He's top 20 in the world right now. He's number 19 in, in the rankings. And he's won... He's got to six finals, like you said, over the course of two years. And the first final, you know, was against Laszlo Gera. So you could argue he was probably... Looking back, he was expected to win it, but that was his very first one in an ATP 500. So you kind of say, okay, he's probably going to have more chances... Then he goes to Lyon and he plays against Benoit Paire, and you're thinking that's a very winnable match. You know he should get there, but unfortunately he get, he gets injured and he loses that one in straight sets and misses the French Open right after that. Now his next four finals are interesting because they're against players that are better than him right now, technically and tennis wise, yeah. and you know they're just at a more they're just at a point in their career where they've already won titles before and they they know what it takes to win these tournaments and they're just better players than him right now. So like a Berrettini on grass, losing to him in straight sets in a very close two-setter, is there's no shame in that, right? And then, of course, his last three, which is in 2020, he's lost to Gail Monfils, who was playing some of his very best tennis in Rotterdam yeah. and then losing to Tsitsipas, who's the top five player at the moment. And then now losing to Zverev, who's just shown great consistency. So, but you look at it, and he's played poorly in all these matches. You know, he's making a lot of uh, 
unforced errors in these in these matches and really just not able to get over the hump and maintain the rally tolerance and patience necessary. And he's pulling the trigger on the wrong shots. So mm-hmm. that can be a little worrying that these four matches, apart from the Berrettini, his last three matches against Monfils, Tsitsipas, and Zverev were never really close. And he just made a lot of unforced errors in all three of those occasions. You know, I mean, shot selection was a little bit poor at times. He wasn't quite building up the rallies the way he wanted to. The further Zverev and Monfils got behind the baseline, particularly Zverev, I guess, if we're talking about recently, you know, Zverev was just comfortable just trading backhand to backhand and, you know, and just making Felix play the extra shot and he just knew the error would come. And that's a little bit what he has to learn to develop is that next dimension in his game of when plan A doesn't work, I need to go to a plan B and come up with new ways to win points than just hit my opponents off the court, you know. So I think that maturity and experience will come the more he puts itself positions to end. And now someday a position will come where he will be he will be the higher-ranked player and he will play against a lower-ranked opponent and he will get through that finish line and win win a title finally. So I just hope yeah. for his sake the scar, the scar tissue doesn't keep on building up, you know, because it can be can be tough psychologically to rebound. The good thing for him is that he's playing Cologne too. So, yeah. so you know, he's in the semifinals here again. And it was a great effort today. He got he won his match over Nishioka. And it's always a good accomplishment when you lose to somebody twice and you finally beat them. That shows that you're mm. making progress. So now he is going to yeah. have to, unfortunately, get through Diego Schwartzman, which will be tough. And then likely yeah. Zverev and Yannick Sinner, who's playing the best tennis of his life. So it'll be interesting to follow his trajectory and his his career but you know i think we really should take it one tournament at a time and not mm-hmm. just assume that he's going to win majors you know oh yeah it's a definitely a thing especially like when it comes to um i mean assuming that anybody's just going to win majors yeah. is, is a really tough thing like yeah. we can say with confidence that for example Tsitsipas and Medvedev we can't make like a confidence guess guesses but we may be wrong all the way like maybe Maybe Tsitsipas and Medvedev and Zverev will never win Islam. Like this is entirely possible. Uh, it will be really sad, but like I don't. It and I don't, seems unlikely, but it's it's still possible. Like they're humans and everything. Um, right, but, but like you know, yeah. a player like FA needs to get to that level where he's been talked about with those guys, right? Like Zverev, Tsitsipas, yeah. Medvedev, and team who's a little older. You know, they've put themselves in the positions. They've made semifinals and finals, so they're at least they're in the mix. Right. Yeah, exactly. So for Felix, for Felix, he has to join that crop and be in the mix. Right now, he's a tier, or he's a tier below those guys. So yeah. I think 2021 will be crucial for him to get to that next tier. And hopefully, we have a full season, and you know, oh, yeah. hopefully, the off season goes well for him, and he can stay injury free. That's the other thing is it's so hard to predict now with the depth, and it's so hard to predict longevity right because you just don't know if one of these guys is going to get hurt and all their yeah. is stopped that's one thing you just can't predict yeah it was a thing for me like when Dal Potro won his first Grand Slam exactly. I, was, I was so sure he was going to keep going like when like multiple and it, things happen the way they happen and sadly his career has taken many hits yeah. um it's sad but yeah but that's the thing and um maybe speaking a little bit of like expectations also um mm-hmm. What are you expecting from Nadal in the end of the at the end of the year? Yeah, I mean we had Steve Flink on in the in the last podcast and he was yeah, you know, quite sure that Rafa was not going to play the rest of the season and that he was going to go well rested and he, you know, and I think it was a good reasoning that Steve Flink had which was that you know, Nadal now knows that he can take extended periods of time off and he can rely on his on his experience of having done it several times to kind of play his way into the tournament and make his way into form. But I think mm-hmm. this year, him being so physically fresh, not having played those seven months, and he wasn't yeah. injured or anything, it was just because of the pandemic and yeah. not playing the the US Open. I think that gives him now, for the first time in his career, he's actually physically fit and ready to a point yeah. where he believes he can win these titles, you know? Which was basically my point, and I was, I'm so happy that I was right. And you were, you were spot on about that, because yeah. I was also thinking the same thing, that, you know, and now... I feel like with his game, his aggressive style of play, and his he's winning these points a lot quicker than he was, you know, just he used to rely more on his physicality and his defense. Now at 34 and a half years of age, he has so much variation and variety in his game where he can essentially just tear through rallies and win rallies in zero to four shots that he just couldn't with his before because of his 
His surf plus one is a lot better. His net game is a lot better. He's essentially a more complete player. So Mm -hmm. indoors, I feel like now with the legs, you know, with the confidence that he has from Roland Garros to play Paris and London three weeks, to play Paris and London is a great opportunity for him. One, also because his greatest rival, Novak Djokovic, will be playing in Vienna and will skip Paris because he can't earn any new ranking points. And so I think Nadal knows that he can't get to world number one, but I think this is a good opportunity for him to win Paris and win London. And it's also a really good statement to make because a lot of his fans or a lot of people, you know, they hold that up against him that in the multi-dimensional GOAT debate, which we won't get into right now, (laughs) that, you know, he has never won indoors. He's never won the World Tour Finals, which is a big title that, you know, Federer has won six times. Djokovic has won it five times and he has never won it. So this is a great yeah. opportunity for him to at least win Paris, you know, and then, you know, hopefully maybe get to another final and maybe we can see a Djokovic-Nadal match one last time yeah. to finish the season. So I'm, I'm expecting I'm expecting him to do really well in Paris and London, to be honest. Yeah, I, th- I think it's I think it's interesting uh, now thinking thinking about it, like uh, there must be at least two things going on in Nadal's mind right now, like that I'm just kind of like processing. It's one, the desire of winning indoors, like in tournaments that he's he's never won before. Mm-hmm. It must for a champion, it must be tough to like say like I cannot even get close to it or something like that. Mm-hmm. Like uh, or getting I got close to it but never managed to to cross the line mm-hmm. for several reasons. Uh, so he probably wants it so badly at this point like right now just he probably really really wants to do well in those tournaments particularly in uh in the world two finals and the second thing that i find is probably like running at least in the back of his mind just kind of like a like a precautionary uh measure is not to get injured before the off season so that he can come in fresh for the australian open because he's steve blink was not wrong when he was when he was saying that like nadal was definitely looking at the australian open he is definitely looking at that tournament because he's only won it once and he suffered uh, pretty bad defeats, um, really heartbreaking defeats, really, uh, in the past. In the finals, uh, yeah. In the finals, four, four yeah. Finals so I think, it, yeah. So, yeah, I feel like he really wants to be fresh for it. Um, but I think he really is taking taking his chance because he probably really, really also wants the World Tour Finals um, trophy. Yeah. Because if you compare the two, um, the Australian Open, he already has won. And. I feel like if he if he were to choose if I can only want win one of those right now I think he would pick the or two finals right, yeah. maybe I I can't be wrong because the Australian Open is still a Grand Slam it would be like a a double career Grand Slam which is no, quite I, impressive I, I understand yeah. what you're but, saying but you know to be missing a trophy in your in your trophy case it's always something that you'd be like ah oh, man I could have done this I feel I feel like. yeah I, your spot you're you're pretty accurate in that I mean I think I think yeah he wants to win the Australian Open that's his his next priority but i think he also feels like physically he can do it you know because paris is there's paris and then there's a week off and then there's london so it's not like he mm. has to play back to back which can be which can be quite challenging you know so if he can get enough matches in paris maybe and peak at the world tour finals that might be ideal because you know paris masters is one of those tournaments that we've seen a lot of other guys win and there's a lot of there's a lot of unpredictability but i feel like this time of the year you know with nadal's confidence and having just won in Paris three weeks before, I think he's going to be super fit, and I expect him to be really sharp in Paris and London. Mm-hmm. I'm expecting him to do very well in both those tournaments. And, you know, I think yeah. Steve was also making the point that, you know, he feels like he'd have to play badly, and, I mean, he'd have to play very well, and Djokovic would probably have to play worse, you know, and he would... There's a lot of other guys that can maybe hurt him indoors, like a Tsitsipas, Medvedev, who yeah. almost beat him last year, Zverev, who beat him last year. And these kind of guys, but I feel like now, you know, that changes, it changes things a lot, you know, especially if these other guys are playing week in and week out, like Zverev is playing in Cologne and they're playing back-to-back weeks and, you know, Vienna and Paris, I mean, they're not going to be super fresh heading into the World Tour Finals as well. So that's something maybe Nadal can capitalize on and, you know, you know, fingers crossed he doesn't get injured like he did last year in Paris, which also Mm. affected his chances, so... You know, it'll be it'll be interesting to follow, and I'm I'm. It's great for the tournament. It's great for the fans. It's a win 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 for everybody that he's playing these these two yep. two events. I think it's a it's a great story. And actually, it was very fifty fifty. A lot of people thought he wasn't going to play half. It was really half and half. I really wasn't sure. Yeah. I was torn about it. But yeah. Yeah. So. 
speaking of stories, yeah. um, one that's not so great, um, and it's something nice that segue. I yeah, I particularly didn't necessarily want to talk about it, but I recognize the importance of it. So I think I'll just let you say, it and like I'll, I'll I'll say whether I agree or not with it at the end. Like Mr. Sam Quarry and uh, his uh, amazing race against the Russian government. Yeah, I mean, it's, <laughs> for COVID it's, problems, it's quite a story. Like I mean, he is. He could be considered like not to make light of the situation, but he could be considered like the ultimate tennis fugitive, you know. Yeah. Like, and I guess not to make light of a serious situation, but I mean, what really happened is he was playing in Saint Petersburg in Russia, and he was supposed to play his first round match, and he had tested positive. He and his wife were traveling with their eight month old son Ford, um, and he and they'd all tested positive right before the tournament, so he was immediately withdrawn. He was forced to stay. He was going to stay in a four, in a five-star hotel, the Four Seasons, right next door to the tournament. Um, and, you know, eventually he got contacted by Russian health authorities that, you know, you and your family, if you have se- severe COVID symptoms, because they did have mild COVID symptoms, but they had said if you have symptoms, you know, you're going to be forced to hospitalize here in Russia and you can't go anywhere for the next few days. And they came on his door supposedly three times and he was very skeptical of it obviously some of that is american sentiment some of that is patriotic you know no institutional know-how if you're in a foreign country in the middle of a pandemic um, with your wife and your child and you you know you don't want to especially with everything going on in the world and news and the reputation that foreign countries have that american people have of foreign countries that certainly played a role in it and he felt that he was better off, you know, violating the protocol and leaving and taking him and his family with him to a nearby country where he could quarantine for a few days. Now, the problem with this is that it completely violates all ATP pro, uh, COVID protocols. And, uh, you know, he could be facing a serious suspension from the ATP just because, you know, to the ATP has done so much work and has gone through so much to get waivers from these governments to allow the players to play these tournaments in the middle of a pandemic, which quite frankly, I'm still a little bit, you know, uneasy about when I see that they're playing indoors and they're traveling country to country and it's not a bubble like it was in New York and US Open. And so these cases unfortunately happen. And I understand this. I can sympathize with the queries. I can understand, you know, that maybe if I was in this situation, I might panic. I might, uh, you know, but it's, it's certainly not something that, can be just ignored and excusable. You know, I certainly think he should. I certainly don't think it was right for him to just leave, leave the country like that. And, Mm -hmm. you know, essentially, you know, without telling anyone and without, yeah, without really... he basically ran away. That's the thing. Like yeah, he, it was like a it was like a James Bond movie. It was like running yeah. away from Russia. Exactly, that's exactly <laughs> what it was. And so I think yeah. it's, and we still don't. And know he didn't even is. reveal his uh, his location afterwards. I believe he was kind of like in a in an unknown place after. Yeah, I mean, and so it put the rest of the tournaments that it puts a lot of the tournaments at risk going forward. You know, you can't hold the players accountable anymore. You know, so they yeah. feel like it's it's in some ways when you're playing in the middle of a pandemic, you know. It's as unfortunate as it is, like you signed up for this, you know, so you, you are taking that risk, especially when you're taking your eight month year old with you, with you, you know, in the middle of a pandemic, you know, maybe that's not the wisest thing to have done. He should have just gone, gone with himself and his physio and with another person. And, you know, because, you know, that certainly makes it complicated when you have a young kid and he's, you know, going to be in a hospital and potentially be separated from his parents. Right. That's the other thing Mm -hmm. too. So I understand the situation, but I just, you know, hopefully the ATP gives him a a light ban, if you will, because right now they're saying three years, uh, three year ban, which is just crazy. I mean, he won't be able to come back from that. He's thirty three. I yeah, uh, I think it's I think it's insane. Like I feel like, but uh, yeah, I think at least like a rest fine. of the season ban would be fine. Right. Yeah. Or the the other option is a hundred thousand dollars, which I mean is a lot of money, but I feel like Query has done well for himself in his career. That a hundred thousand dollar fine, I think he'd be much more much more okay with that versus a three-year ban it would be interesting to hear his side of the story too because he's not spoken on this and uh you know all of this that i just told you right now is coming from actually fantastic reporting done by ben rothenberg of the new york times i think you know oftentimes he tweets a little bit to stir the plot and he's uh you know can be a polarizing figure journalist but i think when it comes to reporting stories he's very accurate and on the money and he's professional about the way he goes about 
uh, writing and editorial editorializing these stories in a entertaining yet factually accurate way. So kudos to Ben Rothenberg. And yeah. uh, hopefully we'll see where the story develops. But yeah, it just makes me nervous. What it does is just makes me nervous about 2021, you know, with the, uh, with the Australian Open because the Australian Open are a lot more strict with their protocols. I mean, yeah. there's a reason why Ash Barty didn't play the whole year. It's because they have such strict protocol that even inter- interstate, they don't even allow interstate traveling. So, I mean, if the players are going to have to quarantine and come to the tournament two weeks before and, you know, play a kind of Australian swing, how's that going to look like in 2021? Um, and, you know, because these tournaments right now are still being held in Europe and everybody's traveling everywhere. I mean, they're going from St. Petersburg, then they're going to Cologne, they're going to... And so it just makes me uncomfortable. Like, why not make all the tournaments in one one place? Like, they did it at Cincinnati and call that Cincinnati and then call that New York. Instead of, you know, traveling between countries in the middle of a pandemic where cases are rising right now. And then you're playing indoors, too. And you're playing with fans. So, like... Like yeah, I think I think the fans for me is the one that the, the one thing that makes me the most uneasy about everything because especially in a in a in a place like Europe where um traveling across countries like crossing borders is and the populational um density is so large so so immense like a, mm-hmm. it's just for me the fans for me I I they don't cut it for me. I don't understand how they allowed this to happen. Yeah. Um Uh, so, yeah. at least uh, in in all the, the crazy stuff that happened here in uh, in, uh, in America, well, like down south south of the border for me, but like uh, in New York, things were weird. But at least they didn't have fans, and they were in a pretty big bubble. Like things were quite right. well controlled. A little hiccups hiccups here and there, but like I feel like uh, tournaments in Europe are kind of pretty relaxed in a sense and it's just it's just awkward it's just weird yeah, to see that really and is. i hope i really I, just like you said like i really hope that it doesn't jeopardize the rest of the season and most especially the the australian open next year i hope they don't cancel that one as well because yeah I mean, it's it's going to be a really big drought of uh, tennis if the australian open gets canceled and the and if the australian open gets canceled by the way it's not only the australian open but in the entire Uh, yeah. Australian summer that right. gets canceled. So like it's entire January, no tennis. Just that's that's what it's going yeah. to be like. Yeah, I mean it'll be interesting to see how tennis adapts and adjusts their calendar in 2021. Just in general, you know, are they going to make like is Indian Wells going to happen? Is Miami going to happen? Are they going to put these tournaments? Are they going to change their spots on the calendar like the French Open decided to do this year? Is the pandemic going to get any better? You know, how are the players going to deal with the traveling? How is what kind of measures will be put into place? You know, so it's all this, this is just, especially right now with how bad it is in America, you know, and we have an election coming up and there's a lot of <laughs> politics going on to see what's happening in Europe and the COVID cases rising and still tennis being played essentially normally, really with no, like nothing really has changed much. It's just a little bit jarring to see at, see at times, but, and, and, you know, if nothing happens, I mean, we get lucky and we're you know, we're safe and we're all, everybody's happy, but, you know, certainly it's, it's so tough as it is. So I just hope 2021 is, is better logistically. And, you know, and we've had some new changes to the player council as well. Right. I mean, like with uh, Vasek Pashpur, Sam Corey, John Isner, Novak Djokovic, they, they uh, aren't in the council anymore. They have their own players association and we haven't heard so much about them really apart from that one photo shoot that happened in New York. So yeah. now we have new members on the council, like uh, Felix Ogelia, Seam, Andy Murray, uh, John Millman, and I'm forgetting maybe, you know, one other person. I don't exactly remember. But, uh, you know, so it'll be interesting to see how does Andrea Gadenzi move, move about with the tournament structures next year? How does the player council meetings go? And whether the PTP actually gets some traction because they're supposed to meet once the season is over and, you know, kind of decide things, are they going to be able to get anything done at this point? Especially when it was announced, you remember the, like how the timing was, right? It was just before the U.S. Open when tennis was yeah. just trying to get itself together. And, you know, I mean, if the PTPA feels strongly about it, that the players are not being represented well by the, you know, by the tournaments and they're not getting, you know, what they want, they're not getting their fair share of the pie, if you will, you know, 
it'll be interesting to see how come they weren't able to work in that structure and whether they actually get something properly going, they get a proper plan going, you know, because right now there seems to be no plan with the PTPA, but just this idea of going kind of against the council and, uh, you know, getting a slice of the pie, but we don't really know what that is. We just know that yeah. it's, it's not working for them in the council. So there's all these political things at play, but mainly we just hope everybody's safe and we can have a somewhat normal tennis calendar next year with all the four slams. I mean, it's still amazing, right, that we got three slams this year. Right? Yeah, it is. And the Wimbledon had pandemic insurance and they were able to give out money to all the lower ranked players. True. And so at least it at least it was far, far better than we all thought. And that's the main takeaway. Yeah. yeah. Wimbledon first cancel first cancelled Wimbledon since World War Two, isn't it? Yeah. It's pretty impressive. It is, it is. It just gives you like a perspective on how big the situation is. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Well, Eddie just to wrap up and like roll things just kind of like make go, things go full circle um mm-hmm. you are posting stats on twitter now every yeah. day something like that right yes what did you post today i don't think i saw it okay yeah so i'll tell you so i so i started yesterday I, I i thought you know i have all these stats in my head and i make notes all the time and i and i've been saving all these stats up and i share them with specific people mostly you and owen lewis <laughs> but yeah <laughs> but i thought you know why not make something like a stat of the day where i post a stat like make it public yeah make it public so i i posted a stat today i posted uh, a really interesting stat about andre rublev i said andre rublev has won more atp 500 titles on clay than djokovic and federer have combined so oh my god rublev has won one title which is the hamburg which is an ATP 500 this year against Tsitsipas in the final. And Djokovic and Federer combined have won zero. <laughs> and uh-huh. Rublev, the second part to the stat was Rublev has also won more ATP 500 titles on clay than Novak Djokovic has won on grass and clay combined. Because there's... <laughs> oh, yeah, there is actually now a grass court 500. Yeah, and for, like, for him, he didn't win Queens in 2018, right? He played against Chilich in the final. So he lost yeah. that one. Otherwise, he would have an ATP 500 on... Uh, on grass and he doesn't play a lot of atp 500s on clay because he goes more for the master series right he was he wins rome he wins monte carlo wins Madrid, but the 500s he's played very few times like he played against he played in 2018 and he lost early when he was still kind of struggling with his elbow yeah so that's a great stat for (laughs) rublev yeah (laughs) something to look forward to (laughs) so in that in that vein like there's probably a lot of people then that are falling in the same category (laughs) yeah (laughs) nishikori i thought of that too there's nishikori there's the there's the bazilashvili even bazilashvili won hamburg twice so yeah so i guess so but i just posted rublev just because i feel like a lot of people are into rublev on twitter yeah just it's it's a it's a yeah. yeah it's a funny thing too i find so yeah yeah. so i feel like rublev hype so i'll just go with that yeah, yeah. I'm I'm into Rublev. I like him. I think he can go big. I think he reminds me uh, a little bit of um, what's his face, Davidenko. Okay, yeah, that's a good comparison. I feel like the yeah. the Russians are doing really well right now, and yeah. they're gonna have, they have a stacked Davis Cup team. I feel like last year it was Medvedev who broke through. The year before it was Hatchinov who won the yeah. Masters, and now this year it's the other two guys are falling off a little bit. But Rublev has really come into his own skin. Speaking of, he's yeah found a reliable way to win matches and he you know he might be one-dimensional i guess if you may call it that but his dimension is so strong <laughs> so it's like a, it's a dimension that everyone would literally kill to have and yeah. so there's not a lot of when he's playing his best tennis there's not a lot of players who can beat him at, at any level right now and that's true so yeah i mean yes yeah. most likely going to qualify for london so that'll be interesting yeah yeah that'll be really cool i'm excited for london yeah, and on on that note, uh, on the Twitter note, follow us on the social media. We have Instagram, Facebook, uh, which are not quite very active, but we we're working on that, and we're gonna we're gonna try to get um, more active on on those things. Both Twitter all the time, as much said, he's posting stuff every day. I'm posting stuff every other day or something like that. And follow me at tennis uh, underscore bagels um, and Vansh at Vansh v two k. And uh, that's it. Uh, maybe or maybe not. <laughs> Hopefully soon. We're going to try to get some YouTube channel going on as well. But um, yeah, another thing uh, is... Uh, we're, not, we're not really putting a date on that one. <laughs> but like we'll try our hard to like do it before 
the Australian Open. We will try our best, especially once the season is over and once we have a little more downtime, we can work on, uh, you know, making our Instagram and Facebook and YouTube more active. But we do have a good, uh, we do have a good base. We have a website that's uh, currently been work- we've been working on. We'll release that uh, soon once it's ready to go. But essentially, we'll have all the podcasts available on all platforms. So you guys can go and our listeners can check those out on there and there'll be an about me section as well. So you can get to know us a little bit and get familiar with our beautiful faces and, yeah. uh, and voices. <laughs> and then we'll have a, a contact section there as well. So we can, uh, so if you guys have any questions, feel free to DM both tennis underscore bagels and bunch V 2k anytime. We're open to suggestions, any guests you might like us to have. And please always, rate subscribe and review on itunes give us a five-star rating give us the give us your comments and input it's very much appreciated yeah and then don't and if you listen to it like also talk to us on twitter we're actually pretty active there and if there's something that we said like you you disagree with or you really agree with like just talk to us as well like we love to chat so yeah on that note we will see you guys uh some other time and uh yeah let's see what happens this end of this week See ya. Bye. Bye. Bye, Vansh. Yeah, bye, Andre. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.